0: The Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. The king said, Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, There remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Mephibosheth Son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeisance and said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table." Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. One day, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then some men came, carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the roof. Or through the tiles in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this man who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who is paralyzed. I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement ceased all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your son, for your word, for your spirit. We ask that you would be with us. Bless us now as we sit with your scriptures. Would you open our minds? Would you open our hearts? Would you draw us toward yourself? And would you change us, we ask, as your spirit works upon us to make us people who love you and love our neighbor more deeply, more sincerely, more powerfully, and more fruitfully. We ask that you would do that work among us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever find yourself just kind of in need of some good news? Um, I don't know about you, but I went to bed last night feeling kind of heavy after the news uh, surrounding uh, the events in El Paso. And then I woke up again this morning with like fresh tragedy news about what had gone on in Dayton, Ohio over the night. And just realizing a lot of people are grieving today. Because a handful of individuals have chosen to use their power to do harm instead of good um, to their neighbors. And I suspect many people also today are feeling afraid as uh, these stories remind us of this inescapable reality that we live in a world that's not safe. And that's just true. Not that we need reminders, right? I mean, we have our own stories of pain. We have our own stories of the way that uh, we have lived vulnerably in the world in ways that have hurt us. We also live in a city that is marked by brokenness, and we live among neighbors who carry their own stories of hurt and suffering into the ways that they inhabit space, into the ways that they uh, relate to neighbors. Uh, And every day we are hearing or we are reading stories about how powerful people are doing what. They're using their power corruptly. They are Exploiting other people, they're conquering other people, they're seeking the benefit of a few at the expense of many, or they're seeking to push their own agendas, regardless of what that means for everybody else. It can be fatiguing to consume news like that over and over again. It can be fatiguing, it can be disheartening to live vulnerably in a world that's not safe. And sometimes it's just like, I could use some good news today. I could use something substantive and good I mean I know I can always like google those videos of cats playing with cute things or whatever but like you need something more robust right you need a a more robust good news I need to hear stories of people actually using their power for good not harm even when doing good puts them at risk I need to hear stories that are going to inspire me to live into the world differently Not out of fear or self-preservation, but out of that kind of risky love that actually makes life flourish in the world. And I need to be reminded that the story of the world and the story of humanity, this unfolding story that we all find ourselves living inside of, despite all of its tragedy and despite all of its complexity and pain, is actually a profoundly hopeful story. It is a profoundly beautiful story because God is involved. Because our father has not abandoned his children or gone back on his promise. Because our savior is alive and he weeps with those who weep. And because the spirit is here, moving the story forward toward reconciliation, restoration, toward justice and wholeness and peace. We need to be reminded of those things. We need to hear those kind of stories, and for literally thousands of years, the story of David and Mephibosheth has been a source of inspiration and hope for people who have been struggling to live by faith rather than fear in a dangerous world, or for people who have struggled to live by hope rather than cynicism in a world that is so broken by corruption, And for people who've struggled to live by love instead of self-preservation in a world that so often seems trapped in this dog-eat-dog competition where, in the words of Bruce Springsteen, down here it's just winners and losers and don't get caught on the wrong side of that line. The story of David and Mephibosheth is a story of a king actually being a good king. Imagine that. A story of a king actually using power for good and not for ill. It's a story that gives us a glimpse into the very heart of God Himself. And it's a story that invites us, or we might even say summons us, into a life of love, into a life of giving and receiving love in communion with God and one another. And so I just want us to reflect. On those things, of what this story does, the first just being this, the story of David and Mephibosheth is an inspiring story of a king being a good king. If you just look at the story here, this episode, it it marks really like the culmination, a high point of David's development as a character. This king after God's own heart. Now sadly, when we keep reading the story... It all goes downhill from here. Uh, This is kind of like this this moment where David is reaching kind of the climax of his development as the king after God's own heart. And next week, as we turn to a a much darker chapter, we'll see David uh, fail spectacularly and tragically in a way that will leave us wanting a much better king to come. But we aren't there yet. At this point in the story, David is exemplary. In the, the end of the chapter right before this one, in verse, chapter 8, verse 15, it just says this. It says, so David ruled over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all people. Not just some people, not just his supporters, all people. This is the good king. And David here is being contrasted with Saul, who, if you've been reading through the chapters leading up to this, Saul has, you know, the end of his rule was characterized by his paranoia over losing his throne. And he had allowed his reign to, defo- to devolve into almost like this like Game of Thrones-esque drama of power grabs and scheming and creating this series of disasters in the wake of his own selfish ambition and self-preservation. David emerges here as the good king. The king after God's own heart. The king who administers justice and equity to all the people. And Mephibosheth, in this episode, becomes like the name and the face of that program. Of David's program of justice and equity of all, for all. So who is Mephibosheth? Who is this guy? Well, he's the grandson of of king saul the bad king who at this point in the story has passed he's the son of jonathan who if you remember jonathan was david's best friend he was jonathan was the one david loved uh deeply and jonathan loved david deeply and they even made a covenant together as they were young men in saul's kingdom growing up neither one really knowing who would be king in the end i mean david had been anointed king right but saul was still reigning and 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 being identified as king And Jonathan being his son was the natural heir to that throne. And so here we have David and Jonathan as like two would-be competitors for the throne. Best friends, covenanting, making an oath to one another that no matter what happens, we've got each other's backs. No matter what happens, we will be there for the other and for their family. So Mephibosheth, he is a living heir to Saul's throne, at least in the eyes of all who may still support Saul. And so you might think Mephibosheth is a threat to David because there are still Saul supporters out there. Not many at this point, but they're out there. And Mephibosheth, being family to Saul, you would think, would be the kind of person that David would be wise to do away with, to protect his own throne. But that's not what David does. Now, we've met Mephibosheth before, um, actually in several chapters before. The first time we meet Mephibosheth in the story, he's actually five years old. And it's the episode in the story where the Philistines, they come and they attack Saul and Jonathan and their people. And Saul and Jonathan are both killed. Mephibosheth, being Jonathan's son, a five-year-old boy, uh, is, he's picked up by his nanny, in a, in a hurried attempt to escape, because this looks like okay, they're going to come for us all. So, so the nanny picks up Mephibosheth, a five-year-old boy, and they and, sh- and runs, but she trips and drops him, and he breaks both of his legs, and the the breaks never quite heal right, so he grows up crippled from this accident. And so, Mephibosheth, he's he's someone who has suffered deeply. He's someone who is. Um, he's a victim. It's Suffering has come upon him that he didn't deserve or ask for. They aren't the consequences of his own actions. He's grown up the victim of suffering. And he's grown up among Saul's crew, the supporters of King Saul. So you can only imagine what sort of stories he would have heard about David, right, growing up. With Jonathan, his father, not being there to be the one narrating it. What would he have heard about this other king? Right? The one who came and took the throne. You can just let your imagination run with what this guy's experience has been like of living for about 15 years at this point between that accident when he was five and this point in the story where we meet him again, where he's in his early 20s, most likely. And we find King David summoning Mephibosheth to his throne room. If you just think about that, what it would be like for him to be summoned by King David was probably a terrifying event. You can only imagine what he would be expecting, right? He's going to kill me. But of course, that's not what David does at all. He calls Mephibosheth by his name when he comes. He honors him as a person, and then he uses his power to secure, not his own, not David's own throne, but he uses his power to secure Mephibosheth's life. He uses his power for the good of all, Not just some. He basically pays reparations to Mephibosheth for what was taken from him. This is the portrait of the king after God's own heart using his power in a way that reflects God's desire for his kingdom. Secondly, this is a story that gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. I actually love this as a a story for Baptism Sunday. Um, I never thought about this as a text for Baptism Sunday, Um, but but I love it, especially when we baptize babies, because Mephibosheth in this story, who is he? He he is simply the unwitting beneficiary of covenant love. That's who Mephibosheth is. He's the unwitting beneficiary of an oath that David and Jonathan made to one another that David is now making good on. This oath that they took that no matter what happens, I will be there for you. And you will be there for me. We will look out for one another. And this love, this word that comes up over and over again in this passage and in others is the Hebrew word chesed which is this wonderfully rich, theologically loaded word concept that is often translated steadfast love in our Bibles. You know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, right? His steadfast love endures forever. That's his chesed. Um, But it's more than just love. It's not simply affection. It's deeper than that. It's loyalty. It's allegiance, it's a combination of the two, that deep affection, that deep allegiance, that strong love, and that strong loyalty. It's covenant faithfulness to keep the oath. And what we see David embodying here in this passage is faithfulness to keep the oath he made to Jonathan all those years ago. And he, it's, a, it's a commitment that runs so deep that it's not simply something that he does reactively, when Mephibosheth strolls in and he's like, oh, wow, Jonathan has a son, I need to respond accordingly. No, he goes seeking. Is there anyone left from Saul's house? Is there anyone left where I can show that kind of love for the sake of Jonathan? It's a love that endures. It's a love that is, uh, that that carries forward no matter what and David here is committed to acting on behalf of that oath and when you think about what happens when we baptize babies these unwitting beneficiaries of God's covenant love right just as we say it in that moment of baptism though you know nothing of it yet we love because God first loved us Parents come in the space renewing their own covenant vows with God and claiming those covenant promises on the behalf of their child, who is totally clueless to all of this. Adorable, yes, tuned in, no, right? They have no clue what's happening, yet they are absolutely no less precious in God's sight, no less God's beloved, no less members of the family and heirs to God's promise, this promise of I will be your God and you will be my people, a promise that extends to you and your household, chesed. David's love for Jonathan here extends to Mephibosheth because that's how it works. And David remains loyal to him. And what this is meant to be for us is a picture into the heart of God and the way God relates to his people. Because chesed is one of the most powerful and one of the most common ways that God himself describes his relationship to his people in the Hebrew scriptures. It's this affection plus the allegiance. We are his beloved And he will never let us go. This is how God relates to his people. And David's chesed toward Jonathan is meant to be a picture for us of God's chesed toward his people. But of course, it's not the clearest picture that we get, right? David, we know, is a wonderful picture, often a a window into the heart of God. But we need a better one and we get a better one as we find ourselves reading through the scriptures and we find ourselves in the New Testament seeing Jesus emerge as great David's greater son, a phrase we've used throughout the series. We need, at the end of the day, a better king than David. We need a better picture of God's heart than what David is able to give us. And we need a better covenant even than the one David and Jonathan are making with one another that Mephibosheth becomes a beneficiary of. We need that new covenant that is established in Christ's blood and poured out for many as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is slain and raised. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And he invites us to come and drink of him. The story of David and Mephibosheth gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. What is God like? What is God like? We have all kinds of ideas about what what God is like. And the more we look at our circumstances, the more we dig into our own ability to describe what we think God must be like, we find ourselves coming up with all kinds of descriptions of God. But what this passage teaches us to do is actually to look at the glimpses God himself gives us into his own heart. And this is one, but the greater one even comes in great David's greater son Jesus, who shows us the heart of God so clearly that he says, even if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thirdly, this story invites us, or even summons us, into a life of love, into a life of that same sort of chesed. A life rooted in experience of receiving God's covenant love the way Mephibosheth did, and a life of sharing God's love the way David did. It's a story that gives us a script for how we might enter in more deeply into this life of giving and receiving love. We are called to use our power to bless. David, at this point in the story, is exemplifying that. And Jesus, of course, when he arrives on the scene, exemplifies it all the more, greater authority and even greater acts of blessing the world. And he calls us in fellowship with him and in union and communion with him to enter into that same life of receiving and giving love. And the story becomes a way for us to begin to practice receiving and giving that kind of covenant faithfulness, love. Can you see yourself in the shoes of Mephibosheth? Here he is a stranger. He's taken refuge in this city far away, way up in the north, where he's safe. And he's summoned by the king. He's called into the presence of the king. And if you just imagine what that experience would be like for him, you would probably be just terrified. This is a certain death sentence, right? Because I am the grandson of Saul. I am uh, an heir to the throne, according to some. And it it would absolutely benefit David, you would think, to sentence me to death. He arrives, probably terrified, and what he finds in his encounter with David is not judgment, not condemnation, not death, but covenant love. He's not executed, he's adopted into David's family. Jonathan's son, David, receives as his own son to eat at his own table. And he restores his land to him. He restores his household so that he would have an income stream and so that his children would have a future as well. He restores the fortunes that were taken from him. And David receives Mephibosheth as his own child in his own home. The surprising and extravagant, generous grace of the king for one who is surprised to find it. Can you put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes at all? Can you resonate at all with what it's like to find yourself surprised by the welcome of God for you? Do you know an experience of his love in in that kind of a way, that it actually startles you awake to where you're paying attention differently to God and to yourself? This story is a doorway into how we begin to receive the love of God, but it's also a doorway and a window into how we begin to give the love of God because David uses the power that belongs to him to bless. Not selfish ambition, not securing his own kingdom, but even in a risky move, loving his neighbor. Even loving his neighbor as himself. Henry Nouwen talks about the discipline of the Christian life being one of practicing being God's beloved. Practicing being the beloved. This is what it means to take our baptismal identity seriously as ones who have been washed in the waters with Christ, over whom those words have been spoken, those same words the Father spoke over the Son. He speaks over you. You are my beloved child, and you I am well pleased. I delight in you. The Father speaks those words over you because he's faithful to keep that covenant promise from days of old, a promise that he has secured in his own son, Jesus. He calls us to receive his love in that way, and then he calls us to live out of that identity as bearers of that love in the world, sharing it with one another. Practice being the beloved. I love this feature of the story where we see David receiving, receiving Mephibosheth as one who belongs to him. If you think about what is the what is the effect that this vow between David and Jonathan has on David's life? Well, he vows to receive Jonathan's own, his family, as those who belong to him. And that's what he does. And so as we think about what it looks like to love our neighbor and begin to share this love of Christ with our neighbor, the question is, who belongs to me? Who belongs to you? Who are those people with whom we are to find ourselves in solidarity where I belong to you, you belong to me, and we're all in this together? Who are those people? And what Jesus shows us when he arrives on the scene And this comes through especially clear in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the man comes asking, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this whole story of a sacrificial servant who who, who takes the risky move of loving a wounded and desperate person. And Jesus simply flips the question. He says, who was a neighbor to the man? And of course, the correct answer wasn't the religious guys that kept on walking, but the Samaritan who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Who belongs to you? Who are the people in your life that God is calling you to extend this kind of love, the love we see David extending to Mephibosheth? Who are those people who belong to you? It's your neighbor. It's all those who belong to God, just as you belong to God. Sometimes I just need to hear some good news. Sometimes living in a world where we experience vulnerability and tragedy, where we read headlines that are absolutely demoralizing, depressing, uh, as we experience injustice, as we experience the breakdown in our own interpersonal relationships, as our own lives shipwreck against the jagged edges of this broken world, sometimes you just need to hear some good news. And what I think this text invites us into is actually becoming a people who not only hear good news in the sense of we, we actually take upon ourselves the practice of listening to the stories of what God is doing in our midst. We actually take upon ourselves the practice of inhabiting the good news of a story of a God who has bound himself to us and calls us to bind ourselves to him and one another. But it's actually the practice of becoming good news people that in our own life together, as we take up life here in the city of Philadelphia in the places where you work in the places where you socialize in the places where you hang out with your neighbors, that you take up the work of inhabiting the story of hope, of inhabiting the story that is profoundly good and hopeful news for a world that so desperately needs it, the news of a God who will not turn his back, the God who keeps covenant faithfulness for every generation, and who has secured that promise in the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. Will you let the script of this story, the Mephibosheth script, and the David script, provide for you this week a way into a deeper engagement of receiving the love of God and extending it to others as you use your own power, your own gifts, not in some fearful, self-protective mode, trying to shore up your own life, but in that extravagant, generous mode of loving your neighbor as Christ has loved us first. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for the love you extend toward us in Jesus. We give you thanks for stories such as these that remind us of your generosity, of your faithfulness that you keep. And we pray that your spirit here would stir us would awaken us and would draw us deeper in to this profoundly hopeful story that you are writing in our midst even as we live among the tragedies and the disappointments and the losses the brokenness of life god would you give us hope would you give us faith and most of all would you give us love for you and one another that we might not only receive the good news but we might actually become people who inhabit it, embody it, and offer it to a world that thirsts for you. Give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.